0: We've been in a sermon series called FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions. We've been also meeting on Wednesday nights in our alpha group. We've been covering these topics, but different subject, different focus on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays and that we are going a lot deeper on Sunday morning and we're adding a lot more to the, to the buffet. It's been really cool to sit at a table with folks that are in church and have been veterans in the faith and then having folks at the table that are coming back to the Lord or not Christians at all, just over a meal and over some teaching and a video, exploring faith in a way that is super respectful, very relational. It's been so encouraging, just hearing the perspective of other people as we dive into these topics and into these questions. Today, I wanna talk about something that it's so common in the body of Christ, it's almost become wallpaper. Meaning that all of us know if you believe in Jesus, you know that prayer is important. I think that it's one of those things, like I said when we were just talking, that it gets resisted by the enemy because Satan doesn't really want to tangle with a church that wants to pray and a church that's committed to pray. And so have you ever noticed when it comes to prayer, and, and I'm speaking for myself, there's, there's times that like, I'm in a season where my prayer life is, is fire, and I cannot wait to get up. Like I'm setting my alarm with that anticipation, like same as going on vacation. Like I can't wait to get up, go on the plane, get a break from the work schedule and go chill in the sun. There are seasons that it's like, I can't wait to get up and pray. There are other seasons that it's like the alarm goes off and I'm like, man, I would rather do anything than get up and pray right now. Can I get an amen? Amen. Can we be real? We all feel this, right? It's one of those things that is so important, yet there's so many books written on prayer. So many books written on prayer. And usually we'll buy the book and we won't read it. We're hoping that maybe somebody will have some key, some trigger, some revelation um, that magically wakes us up in the morning and has us with an incredible prayer life. And we do need revelation, but at the same time, with the revelation or the perspective God gives us, it does require commitment, and as we commit, The feelings come and the desires grow. You know, I think about this as we're starting. I want to start with like, who are we praying to? Who is this God that we're talking to? An atheist might think, and maybe you're an atheist in here today, it might look really weird that there are people that believe they're actually communicating with a being that you cannot see. That you're having a conversation with somebody, a person, a divine being that... uh, You've never met. There's no pictures of. Even Jesus, we, we know that he existed by historical records, but to believe that this Jesus died and that he rose from the dead and that then he ascended to heaven and that somehow his spirit lives in us and he allows us to communicate with God, that might seem really weird. And we live in a natural world, and even as believers in Christ, we have to overcome that carnality or that flesh that causes us to doubt that what we're doing is actually working. Because when we're able to see the way God sees, and if we're able to crucify that mind that wants to doubt that prayer works, we're able to tap into something that is known as the resources of heaven itself. And that God has everything we need for this life and for godliness in his supply, but he calls us, to communicate with him about it. So who is this God? We look back in the Old Testament, and the disciples, who were Jews, they would have known God as this incredibly powerful, majestic figure. And he is. And he is today in the New Testament. But when you look at how God was revealed in the Old Testament, compared to how Jesus revealed him in the New Testament, though there are similarities, you have a more predominant picture of God in the Old Testament as this superior, strong being. You look at Moses, and he's taking the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they're about to leave, and God is sending plague after plague after plague. He's a miracle worker. And here's the the most powerful man in all the world, who was Pharaoh at the time, and God just patiently wore him down. Time after time, plague after plague. And then God, he tells the Israelites to go borrow a bunch of gold and silver and jewelry from their Egyptian neighbors. And so they borrow it knowing God says, I'm gonna also, I'm gonna take you out. This last plague's gonna hit and you're gonna leave with all their jewelry. How many know that was a slick move on God's part? Go borrow it. And by the way, you're gonna keep it. Well, isn't that stealing? Well, not if God says it because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? So if I ever borrow a watch from you, pair of shoes. I might just say the Lord needed it and uh, take it up with him. So they see God part a Red Sea. Can you imagine standing at a sea? Egypt's coming behind you to kill you and the sea parts. This is the God who parts the sea and then that same God, he swallows up the enemy in that ocean. We see that he's, he's a God who he called Moses to a mountain to meet with him and The children of Israel, they said, hey, God is too scary, he's too intimidating, we don't wanna talk to God. Moses, we'll talk to you and you talk to God. We we don't have the guts to actually have a conversation with this God who answers by thunder and lightning and parts the Red Sea and he disciplines us in the wilderness. We don't wanna meet with him. And so Moses goes up, he got to speak with God. He brings the commandments down and you remember the passage that it says, Moses came down and just from meeting with God, right? His face was so glorious, just shining with such godly divine radiance that it scared the people. Like God rubbed off on Moses because of the encounter. And they said, dude, you got to put like a veil over your face because you're freaking us out. This is the God that the Jews would know. Elijah is up on Mount Carmel and there's the prophets of Baal, which God is going to answer by fire. So Elijah calls them to a challenge. And these prophets are calling on their God to answer and light this altar on fire and they start cutting themselves and they start yelling and they start screaming and it was just chaos. And Elijah mocks them and and basically says, hey man, your God isn't real. And he calls on our God and God answers by fire and he he laps up with fire this water-soaked altar. This is the God that the Jews would have remembered. There's so many stories The last one I'll mention is Joshua. You remember Joshua was fighting, and they need to win this battle, but the sun is going down, and this miracle takes place where God stops the sun and gives them extra time to win the battle. He is the God who parts seas. He is the God who is so glorious that when you get in His presence, that His his very glory rubbed off on Moses to where they were scared. He's the God who brings fire down to consume offerings. He's the God who could stop the sun. And so think about this. Here's some of the names for God in the Old Testament. This is the one we're praying to. This is the one especially the Jews would have known and do know him as today. He's known as the great and mighty God, the awesome God, most high, everlasting, all-powerful. He's known as the maker and creator, the Holy One of Israel. He's our strong tower. They know him as a fortress You know what a fortress is, right? It's a walled-in city that's made to be impenetrable to the enemy. He's my rock, the rock of my strength. He's a shield and a provider. In fact, the Jews would have so much respect for God that they wouldn't even call Him God. They would write His name in our equivalent, G-D. His name is so holy, you you don't even write it. And they wouldn't even say many times, Yahweh. They would just say, Hashem. The name Hashem means the name. They would just say, we need to go and we need to talk to the name. They had such reverence because he was so powerful and so mighty. And so you fast forward and here's Jesus. And Jesus was constantly praying. Jesus was constantly talking to this God. He was God, but he was in a position now where he had put on pause some of his divine attributes and he had, in essence, purposely limited himself to take on humanity, and now he has to have faith and trust and rely on God the Father. So he's talking constantly, every day. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus, he would get up a good time before day, and he would pray. He spent so much time, even before the sun came up, you would see Jesus never too tired to get up, get alone with God and seek his face. And it was so interesting because the disciples, obviously recognizing this, they asked him, hey, Jesus, will you teach us something? This is the first time and the only time that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them anything. When they asked him, there was a reason. And the reason they asked him is the same reason we should have. And it's the same lesson that we should want to learn, even if we think we might know it. Here's what they said, Luke 11, 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray like, like John taught his disciples. Now, this is interesting because they watched Jesus heal the sick. They watched Jesus walk on water. Now, they didn't ask Jesus to teach him any of these things. He, they, they never said, hey, man, we saw you like walk on water. We saw you cast out these devils. Like, will you show us how to do that? That's really cool. I like how you did that. That's amazing. Like, what's the secret? Is there a magic word? Do you, is there a hand motion? Is there a signal? What is it? Like, how do you do this? He did a lot of things that they saw. He opened the eyes of the blind. He had raised a dead man. He cursed a fig tree. Imagine walking up to a tree and just cursing it, and it doesn't live anymore. He fed a multitude with a little bread and some fish. And he he cast demons into a herd of pigs. Now, if if you were there and you saw all these things and you could pick one or two of these things that Jesus would teach you, you know, which ones would you do? I was thinking about this. To me, it would be like, I would love to be able to cast demons into animals, right? It would be so fun to just go up to somebody's pet and just fill them with something crazy. Like we have no idea what's going on. Get a little YouTube video, get a lot of hits, right? Or walking on water. For selfish reasons, like, I would, I would be the entertainment at American Lake, just sneaking up on jet skiers, like, hey, buddy, how you doing today, right? <laughs> Walking up to boats when people aren't paying attention. That would be so money. And I, I'd find a way to glorify God with it, but, <clears throat> like, I just love that superpower, right? Now, you think, well, that's kind of dumb, Dave. Why would they ask? They knew. There was the guy named Simon who was in the book of Acts, that actually asked the same thing. He saw the apostles doing miracle, laying hands on people, and they would give the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands. And he actually says to Peter, hey, I got some cash. I got kind of thick pockets. Let me pay you. Can I buy the ability to lay hands on people so that they can receive the Holy Spirit? And Peter, being a very gentle and subtle and kind human being, (laughs) he replies to him. He turned around, the, the apostle of love, And he says, he says, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking that you can buy the gifts of God, right? But he asked for it. Yet after all this time, the disciples never said, teach us any of these things. But what they did say is they said, teach us how to pray. Why did they do this? Why did they ask this? Because they recognized that these things that Jesus was doing the way that he answered questions, the way that he interacted with power, the way that he could sit with somebody who was an outcast, somebody who was marginalized, somebody who was taken advantage of, the way he could sit and transform and change lives, surely it had to be a byproduct of this deep communion and conversation that he had with God every morning. It had to be that. And so I think they were wise enough to understand That there was no magic trick to these different miracles, but it had to be this connection that he had to God. And it was a connection they realized that even though they'd walked with the Word for all this time, they had not made a connection with God that produced those kind of results in those kind of situations. And so, teach us how to pray. They were asking him, show us how to have that kind of connection. That's a cut right there. (laughs) Hey, oh, oh, hey, hey. Sorry, a little ADD, man. You got to keep your phones on silent or I'm going to bust out into a a praise break. Um, So think about this. Jesus spent a ton of time with, with God. And it's fascinating because all this time in the morning, hours in the morning. And I'm not saying that you have to pray five hours a day or three hours a day, but he would, he would get in conversation with God. And, and then when people woke up and they started their day, he would go out and do ministry and a demon would come manifest out of a person and hours with God. And in a second, he cast the demon out. He would have conversation with God for hours, and these religious experts who were the greatest lawyers of all time when it came to the law and to religion, and they would try and trap him with their most eloquent and most crafty, manipulative strategies, and in an instant, he would answer them. Hours with God, and in an instant, he would have the wisdom needed, he would have the love needed, he would have the power needed, he would have the authority needed, he would know when to shut up, when to speak he would know because he walked so closely with God that when you walk so deeply in conversation and communion with God, that when you face things in life, you're already prepared. I think of like UFC or boxing. You know, these guys, I was at the McGregor fight with Jordan and it was a 40 second fight, but they spent months and months and months preparing. And when they got in the ring, even if it goes five rounds, it it pales in comparison to the time they prepared. And when the disciples tried to cast the demon out of that person and they couldn't do it, they're working and they're praying and they're trying all this stuff and they're working up a sweat. And then Jesus says, hey, what's going on? And like they say, why weren't we able to cast this demon out of this person? And Jesus said, hey, these kind come out only by prayer and fasting. What he was saying is it didn't mean that the person had to pray or fast. It didn't mean that they needed to go on a fast for the person after they found out what the issue was, it means that there are certain things that we face in life that can only be dealt with when we are people of continual prayer and continual connection with God. Because we walk into situations with a greater capacity of his mind, of his heart, of his perspective, and of his authority. We have the fullness of Christ in us because Jesus lives in us but it's the praying man or woman who's able to tap or maximize the capacity of that by being in his presence. And they recognize this. Now check this out. Here's his answer. So they said, teach us how to pray. Jesus gives them the very foundation in his first line. Now remember the Old Testament images of God that we just talked about, about how mighty and majestic he was and is. And so Lord, teach us to pray. Luke 11:2. two, it says, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Say that with me. Say, Father. Father. He said, say, Father. When you pray in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew, he said, prayer starts with Dad, Daddy, Papa, Father. And I know that that can be used in in ways that diminish the the majesty and, and the power and the sovereignty of God and And I'm not saying that we use this this word daddy in a way that's like removes him from his position as ruler and God of the universe and judge. But when you look at this word and you break down its meaning, here's what it says. Father is used as a term of tender endearment by a beloved child. This is what Jesus was telling them to say. In an affectionate, dependent relationship with their father, daddy, papa, this is a family term. Now, how amazing was it that Here's Jesus, they see how he operates. They're Jews who have this picture of God in the Old Testament as big, powerful, sometimes scary, very intimidating, but yet he's a protector, provider, he's a disciplinarian. And then Jesus says to his disciples, listen, if you wanna know how to pray, you need to understand that you're talking to your dad, which means that you are his son, and you are his daughter, you are his child. When it comes to me, Jesus, and what I provide for you, I'm providing for you an adoption. In fact, here's what Romans 8, 15 says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus is saying the relationship with the one that you're praying to It is all based on identity and belonging. And if you start there, then you realize the one who parts the sea is my dad. The one who can bring fire from heaven is my dad. The one who is my rock, my fortress, who is my strong tower, my provider, my mighty deliverer. That's my dad. I'm talking to dad. I'm his son. And yes, he's God. And yes, I'm his servant but servants don't know how to act like a son, but a son who knows his father the right way will know how to serve. And Jesus is teaching us that you are not approaching him like beggarly slaves. You are talking to the God of the universe who has all might, all power, all knowledge, every resource, all truth, and he happens to be your dad by the spirit of adoption. And if we approach him that way, then we don't think that prayer needs to be some seance in which we try and coax God from a million miles away to notice us. I know that I I didn't have a great relationship with my dad, but when he was sober, I got glimpses of a dad who genuinely loved me. Like, hey, let's go throw the ball. You know, I mean, my dad was a very affectionate guy. That's one thing I'm very thankful for is that, although there was a lot of abuse, and there was a lot of violence and heroin and drugs and all this stuff. And I constantly chased him to try and get his attention. There were glimpses where he was in his somewhat right mind. And he would tell me he loved me. And I could tell that he took an interest in me. And the, the games that he did show up to, I could, I could see it. He was so proud. And he wanted to introduce me to everybody he, he came in t- contact with. And we have a dad who takes so much interest in his children. And so when you go to pray, it, it is not that You're trying to somehow like work into motion and attention or some type of magnetic draw that somehow God would see you. He already sees you. His eyes never leave you. They follow you constantly. He's up before you are. He's prepared a meal, a breakfast every morning, every day. He never hangs the phone up. He's on Bluetooth 24-7. He's on demand. He is so interested in you. And sometimes we don't pray. Because we don't realize that it's a child being called to commune with a loving father. And because of that, when the devil can work this lie against us, he keeps us from a conversation that can bring collateral damage to the enemy. In our Alpha discussion this week, I thought this was so beautiful. We got on a really cool talk do we have the picture? Oh, there it is. Okay. This was just cool. So we were talking about this image and I can't remember if this was the original, but one thing I've never noticed about this, this painting, number one is Jesus has some pretty nice hair. He uses some great shampoo, right? No, no. But if you look, um, there's no, there's no door handle on Jesus' side. So we got on this conversation about, well, what what does that mean? And I think it's very biblical. Uh, The door handles on our side. And He stands at the door and he knocks. And so we talked about like what that means. And this is such a picture of prayer. Yes, for the person that has not made a decision to follow Jesus. And he stands at the door and he knocks. And he wants to give you eternal life. And he wants you to be forgiven of your sins. And he says, hey, open the door. You notice Jesus doesn't have SWAT gear on. You know why? He didn't have one of those like battering deals, right? Because Jesus never forces himself on anyone. He stands at the door. No- it didn't say he stands at the door and kicks, okay? He stands at the door and knocks. And it's this beautiful picture of prayer. Even after you're saved, although he dwells inside of you, there's still a knock because once he gets into your life, I think he wants every room in the house. Can I get an Amen. Hey, Jesus, we clean the living room up. Come on, when you have guests over, we clean the living room up. But man, don't let me see your bedroom because you threw everything in there. You got a closet that looks like hoarders buried alive, right, don't go in the basement, don't, you know. So, but he gently knocks on every door. And you know what? We all have different reactions to the knock. How many know the knock, right? God is, you you hear the knock and you don't wanna open the door. Why is that? Think about it. Maybe it was when you first received Christ and you heard that knock and you remember that feeling like God trying to get your attention. And deep inside, I think we're like, what does he want? Like, what what does he want? Is it safe to open the door? This is scary. I'm going to give Jesus access to this door and I haven't even been in there in a long time. I don't even want to go in there. Man, if I open this door, there's a lot of memories that could flood out, and it might send me into a tailspin, and I don't want to go back to the bottle because I can't face what's behind that door unless I medicate myself or numb myself or unless I check out in some way because what I put behind that door needs to stay there. And I know every time I walk by it, it haunts me, but I would rather have this slight, constant, low hum than face the monster that's there. And Jesus is like, can I just, can I just get in behind that door? And so it's scary, what's, what's he after? What's Jesus gonna say? Sometimes he knocks on the door and the reason that we don't go to prayer, can I get honest? Is because when we go to meet with God and we've got some things in our life that, man, we know this isn't where we need to be and we're not living up to what we should and I know what he's gonna say to me because I know what his word says. So why create a conversation where God's just gonna remind me of what I already know, and then I'm gonna feel shameful. And so we sense like, we sense like it's the IRS knocking at the door. Like, don't answer it kids, everybody quiet, move very slow, don't hear any, you know? Or it's the feds, like the feds are here and we're gonna book out the back. Like God's coming in and, and he's gonna bring a list of things that we've done wrong. You know, or sometimes we think that he, he's knocking on the door and if we let him in, he's gonna say like, dude, why'd you have me out in the cold for so long? Like, how many times did I have to knock? We might assume condemnation or shame, but what is the real reason he's knocking at the door? Whether it's to receive him for the first time or in the life of a Christian who has a prayerless existence and you feel it, like, come on, will you spend time with me? Come on, we just just open up? I think we fear what his motive is, but I love this passage because it tells us The very reason for prayer, and it's this, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Listen, the motive of God is to eat with us, to share a meal. Why do we go to prayer? Because God wants to have fellowship with us. Here's what this word eat means, right? It's this Greek word, dipeneo, And it means to dine, to share in my most intimate and blissful contact. This is God saying, I'm not asking you to pray so that you can list off all your sins. I just, I want to share a meal. I want to share a conversation. I want to enjoy your presence as you enjoy my presence. I want to get to know you more. Because the more you know me, the more you understand me, the more confidence you're going to have. You ever have a conversation with somebody you know really, really well versus somebody you just met in an elevator? Which one is more comfortable, right? See, some of us, like, we we know God, but we only meet him in the elevator, and it's like, it's kinda awkward. We don't know what to say. And so then we don't know how to represent him. And we don't know really how to share him because we don't know the deeper issues of his heart if we don't get into the Word or have the Spirit translate these things to us. And so God is like, listen, when you pray, and you share meal with me on a continual basis, you will have my mind, you're gonna have my perspective, you're gonna walk with confidence because you're gonna know how I feel about you. You're gonna walk in the assurance of our relationship that we're good. You're gonna walk into situations where you face things that might seem big, but you're gonna face them knowing that the God who is almighty, who's the maker and creator is your dad. And I've reestablished and reinforced that because we've spent time together, son and father, daughter and father. God is calling us to intimate fellowship. And so prayer, when it starts there, it moves into an outflowing of manifesting God's kingdom in the earth. And this is beautiful because God chooses not to work in the earth unless he's doing it through somebody. And I've talked about this before, but I love this. John Wesley said this, Without God, man cannot. But without man, God will not. Without God, man cannot. Without man, God will not. Here's another quote that says this, When man works, man works. When man prays, God works. Isaiah 6, 8 says this, And I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Why does God need a human to go for them? Why is God looking for someone in this world to partner with him? Well, it's because that's the way he set up the laws of this earth and the way his kingdom would come in. He has to do it through a human vessel through a person that has a spirit, and I've said before, a dirt suit, right? We are made from the dirt, but God breathed his spirit into us, and we're, we have an, a soul and a spirit, and the only way that the, the work of God can move in the earth is if there is someone made of dirt with a spirit that partners with God or the enemy, because the enemy gets into the earth the same way. He can't just go do his work as a spirit, he needs people too. But God brings his kingdom in through willing vessels. And this is where prayer is. And this is why Satan resists prayer because he doesn't want you to just be, if you're saved, he wants to silence your prayer. Because you have not, because you ask not. And unless we petition God, the land can remain unhealed until someone agrees with God, petitions God, declares God's word. God brings his kingdom through a praying vessel. Amos 3.7 says this, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And then let me close with this idea. God, here's the law he set up, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Everybody say, let them. So God says, let us make them, but let them have dominion. Meaning that mankind was in charge of governing, stewarding, and advancing what God wanted. And God would advance what he wanted, but he would do it through them. And then they fell. And oh, how did they fall? Well, Satan needed some type of earthen creature. And so I don't know how this worked, but he speaks to Eve before the fall, and maybe animals were different in certain ways. There was no hostility, animals didn't attack people, they didn't kill each other. So there was something different that we don't really know about, but Satan can't just go in and overpower them. What does he do? He finds a creature, a serpent, and he speaks through the serpent. God did the same thing through a donkey, spoke to one of his rebellious prophets. This donkey turns and starts speaking. I'd freak out, I'd probably put the thing down. But he starts speaking through this serpent. He deceives Eve. And Eve ends up eating the fruit. Man becomes fallen. Now check this out. Think about the way that Satan works and the way God works and the necessity of prayer. He starts with that serpent. But then remember when Jesus is, he's at this last supper. He's about to go to the cross and they're about to receive what we call communion, the bread and the wine. And he dips the bread in the wine and he hands it to Judas. And when Judas took it, it said that Satan entered him. So Satan wanted to kill Jesus. Why did he want to kill Jesus? Well, why would you want Jesus to accomplish the work of the cross? Satan knew that God cannot work in the earth without a human body. That's why God came in human form. He met the law, of the requirement, here's God with a dirt suit on. And now the work of God can manifest and he'll be the sacrifice. But Satan, God may be deceiving him in some ways. He thinks, hey, if we take out the body of Jesus, spirits can't just go do work in the earth. If we kill the body, we stop the conduit. And so Satan uses a person to do that. Judas is filled with Satan. He goes, he betrays Jesus. You see that the Antichrist, the Antichrist, it's, it's the spirit of Antichrist. But what does it need? It needs a human being. It needs a dirt suit to do the work through. And in the same way, God is calling us to be his vessels and conduits to bring his kingdom through the earth. But Satan blocks or closes the conduit when he shuts down our prayer life. Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is in man is El, or God. In man is God. When Jesus died and he he took back his body and he resurrected from the dead, remember what he promised? He said, I'm going to send you the helper. The spirit of God will live inside of you. In man is God. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, but what did he say to you? He said, you are the light of the world. What he's saying is, is that because I died, I conquered death, hell and the grave. I rose from the dead. I'm not just leaving you powerless. I'm gonna put my spirit, the spirit of Christ, I'm gonna make you my body. And because you are the earthen vessel, if you will be a people who devote themselves to me, abide in me and pray, we will tear down the kingdom of darkness. We will push back the forces of hell. We will see people rescued and redeemed. But Satan, like Samson, he wants to lull us to sleep and take our power by cutting off our prayer life. And if a church doesn't pray, it is a church that has all the power in heaven, but cannot release it because God will not release his power except through a praying people who seek his face. I wanna challenge all of us with this last scripture and then we're we're gonna pray. There's a scripture that says this, John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, everybody say that follows me, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." Now check this out. And then, and then we're, gonna, we're gonna believe God and we're gonna pray for, for you. And uh, we're gonna have our, our leaders um, come forward and any need that you have, we're gonna ask that the Lord meet it. And that if it's a sickness in your body, if it's finances, whatever it is, maybe you're praying for somebody else, that we pray in faith. But here's what he said to his disciples. He said, anyone who follows me, this word follow me is, is a verb, and it means to, uh, to stay with me, to accompany me along the path, to continue in fellowship and conversation. Anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now check this out. Th- the light of life, meaning that life To see it in the natural and in the spirit, there's a certain light you need to operate in it. I don't know if you've ever like seen different types of light. Like there's infrared light. And infrared light will show you things that regular sunlight will not show you. When you cast this type of light or or see things through this light, you you actually see things that weren't there with your naked eye under this other light. Uh, I've said it before, you know, you walk through a black light. And you look nice and you look dapper. And then under that black light, you see you got a bunch of lint popping everywhere, right? Well, well, why didn't you see it before? Because it took a different type of light to expose what you couldn't see, right? Bud light will expose some things and get you seeing some things, right? That maybe aren't there, right? Um, So somebody was like, amen, amen. So check this out. So God said that, now, now don't miss this, because this is, this is a picture of prayer. God says that if you walk in intimate fellowship with me, this is prayer, this is communion, that I will give you the light of life. Which means that God is saying, you will have the ability to navigate this life in the natural realm and life in the spirit with an illumination from the divine that will show you things that you cannot see with your natural mind, you will be able to pick things up in conversation. You, you will be able to read the word and see things in the text that your normal mind and brain cannot perceive unless the light of life is given to you. So what do we see in this? We see in Second Kings, I believe, chapter six. Here's Elisha. He takes his servant and he says, hey, you need to calm down. The king of Aram has come after Elisha. Elisha was walking in this light of life. It's a good picture of it anyways, even before Christ. The king of Aram is trying to attack Israel. And somebody keeps giving up his secret plots. And he said to his army, which one is a traitor among you? Who's telling the secrets that I have? How does the king of Israel know every move I'm going to make before I make it? And they said, hey, it's not us. There's a prophet of the land. His name is Elisha. And he talks to God and God keeps telling him what you're going to do. And he keeps ratting you out to the boss over in Israel. Okay. What was that? He saw something he shouldn't have been able to see, but God allowed him a sight that humans cannot have without connection to the divine light. So then he says to his servant, Aram says, okay, send an army. So they sent all these horses and chariots. They surround the house. They're they're cooped up in a Motel 6 and swats outside. And the servant is freaking out and says, we're gonna die, they're here for us. And Elisha says, it says he prayed. And he said, Lord, open my servant's eyes to show him. And all of a sudden his eyes were open. He had what we'll call then the light of life and he looked out and the natural life they were experiencing was sure death, but God let him see the thing behind the thing. And he saw that on this mountainside there were flaming chariots and angels surrounding. And it says that he realized there were more with us than there were of them. Think about this, the light of life, it comes from prayer. So many of us get into situations where we're arguing with people, we're debating with people. It could be in your marriage, your life, it could be a co worker. And you are, you're, you're having a disagreement. You're having an argument. You're facing a hard time. You were offended. You were wronged. But the light of life will show you. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and heavenly places, right? So in that moment, when I'm walking in fellowship with God, Yes, naturally, we do have a disagreement, but what's the thing behind the thing? What is stirring this? The same way Jesus rebuked Peter, but he said, get behind me, Satan. It's still Pete, but Pete is being used by the enemy to talk Jesus out of the cross. But the light of life says, I have double vision in this situation. Come on, there's a good double vision that God wants to give you, right? Double vision is to be able to see this and that. Therefore, I can love my enemies. How do you love your enemies? I got double vision. Yeah, they're, they're, they're punking me, but their soul needs to be saved. Yeah, they're punking me, but they're just acting according to the strings the puppet master Satan is pulling. And so I'm not gonna react to the puppet, I'm gonna react to the puppet master who's pulling the strings, and I'm gonna pray for their soul, and I'm gonna love the hell out of them, and I'm going to bring them to Jesus by not reacting according to my sight, but the light of life that revealed what's really going on. Come on, can you give him praise? So here's what we're gonna do. God says, if you pray with earnest, if you pray with faith, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much or has great effect or power. Listen, we've got to, it's not about willing yourself through it. You have to will yourself to show up, but if you think of the most important thing that we could do as a church in this season, we've committed to to really stepping up our, our, our effort to win the lost, to create spaces for conversation so that those that are outside in a territory that's very unchurched and very unreached, that those who don't have any access to the gospel or resist it, that they can hear the gospel in a way that's not threatening, but that reflects God and we're seeing fruit. But listen, all of the effort and the programs and the the, the sermon series and the campaigns and the Easter deals and all this stuff, it doesn't do anything unless we as a church have called out to God in prayer. Unless we are people who are in fellowship with him. Would you test it? Would you just test it? Would you commit to just set your your bedtime a little earlier so you can get up a little earlier? And would you just sit with dad and just talk to him in relationship? Would you believe that like when you're talking to God that he's listening and he desperately wants to move because it's for his glory? So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk to dad and we're gonna ask dad to show up for his kids. And so you're here today, and, and again, big or small. We, we have oil, oil is a, a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna have the life group leaders and response team come up right now and just stay in the front. We're gonna go back into another worship song. And I want you to, by faith, come before dad, knowing you belong, knowing that he loves to hear you. And let's believe that when we pray, God is going to move. I don't know how He's gonna move. I don't know if it's gonna be instant uh, uh, solution to a problem or if it's gonna be an instant change of perspective. I don't know, but I do, I do know that when we welcome Him, He changes things. And so, as we go back into worship, I'm gonna ask you to stand right now. And I want you to bring your greatest need or the greatest need of somebody in your life. And instead of saying, oh man, we're, uh, all right, we got a few more minutes and then, get to my life. Let's let heaven have a conduit to touch earth and it's going to be our faith, our prayer. So Father, right now, as we go back into worship you and petition you, we ask that God, we would even approach this prayer time with the light of life. That God, we would if we've come forward a thousand times for prayer, that this time we would come forward with a different or a more clear perspective of what you're trying to do. I pray that, God, you would meet us as we agree. You would meet us as we talk to you about these needs. Jesus, you said, no longer will you ask me, but you will go right to the Father and ask in my name, and the Father will give what you ask because it glorifies him. So, Father, we ask that you would do this now in Jesus' name. Amen.